Thank you very much. If you would turn to John chapter 1, we want to continue celebrating celebrating Christmas and thinking about what God has done for us. And obviously, when we talk about God moving in mysterious ways, one of the greatest mysteries uh, in the history of the world is what happened at Christmas time with the birth of God in the flesh. And so we want to look at John chapter 1, and uh, to allow you to stretch your legs a little bit, why don't you go ahead and stand, and we'll read the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, since we've been sitting for a little while, and uh, honor the Lord in that as well. So John chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Well, one of the things that's helpful to keep in mind is that Uh, Whenever we read the Bible, the Bible is um, intending to communicate to us some simply profound things like there is a God and God is good, but we are not good. And Jesus is the answer to that. And that's why God calls us to rest in Jesus, hope in God, and pursue love. And John chapter 1 is a great uh, passage in terms of helping us to see that Jesus is truly the answer to this fallen world, and to our own sin issues as we talked about them even during the sharing time. Um, When we think about Christmas, we often think in terms of the glory of Christmas in various ways. In fact, there are even uh, Christmas celebrations that have been known to be called the glory of Christmas. If you look at verse 14 in the uh, portion of John 1 that we read, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory Glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the questions that I want us to think about is the question, what makes 
Christmas special? What makes Christmas special? Uh, If you're listening to Christmas music, you'll hear the song by, I think it's Andy Williams, uh, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And you'll hear it a lot, I'm sure. But in that song, he talks about uh, it's a wonderful time of the year because uh, kids uh, are jingle-belling and uh, people are telling you to be of good cheer. It's the happiest season of all because of holiday greetings and gay happy meetings and friends coming to call and parties for toasting and marshmallows, uh, parties for hosting, I guess. You don't want to toast your, your, uh, your guests, but marshmallows for toasting and caroling. And I'm not sure how scary ghost stories come into it, but somehow that comes into it. Uh, tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago, much mistletoeing and hearts glowing and loved ones near. And for a lot of people, that is what Christmas is all about. And for us here, we can relate to that because we do enjoy a lot of what that song talks about. But the question is, is that all Christmas is for us? And for a lot of people, that is all of the glory of Christmas for many, many people. On the other hand, there are some people that look at Christmas and they don't see anything special about it at all. And there's a movie that we like to watch called The Christmas Miracle of Jonathan Toomey, in which there's a wood carver who's called by the children Gloomy Toomey. And um, he would say about Christmas, Christmas is pish posh. And pish posh means that it's something to be dismissed because it's nonsense and it's irrelevant. And so there are some people that see Christmas as special, but they don't see it as special as it really is. And there are other people that don't think it's special at all. It's just pish posh. It's just, you know, something people do because people want to make money off of people and people want to act like the world is wonderful, but it's not wonderful. And people just want to gloss over all the evil and the suffering in the world. And they just try to escape it through uh, these fairy tale stories and things like that. And so in the uh, movie, there's a, a widower, um, or a widow, I should say, who uh, replies to uh, Mr. Toomey's pish-posh statement and says, uh, not to us, to us Christmas is very special. And so the question is, is Christmas special to you and why? How special is it and why is it special? Well, in John chapter 1, John is communicating that Christmas is very special to John. Very, very special. And it's because in it, he sees glory. And John uh, uses the word for glory, the noun uh, for glory, about 18 times, which is much more than any other writer in the New Testament. And he uses the verb to glorify uh, more than any other writer as well. He likes to talk a lot about glory and about glorifying. And we see this throughout his gospel. The question is, what is glory? Well, in one sense, it's kind of like uh, splendor or brightness or brilliance. Like you say, the glory of a sunset or the glory of the the sunrise or whatever it might be. And I guess you could say glory is what should draw our attention in certain ways and cause us to praise. Something is glorious when it uh, moves us to praise, whether it's praise for greatness or for power or whether it's praise for beauty or majesty. It's something that draws our attention to be imitated, like 
the glory of humble servanthood, and we say, I want to be like that person. Or we might think of it in terms of something that causes us us to say, that's unique or that's special about that person. That's something that you don't see every day. And I think that is especially, all those things are true about how John, I think, is using uh, the term glory, but especially in John 1, I think he's highlighting the uniqueness of Jesus, just how unique he truly is. Um, We may talk about the specialness of Christmas in terms of decorations and parties and music and gift giving, and yet the real specialness of Christmas is in the person of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And the first point is simply that we see the glory of Christmas and the glory of the word. If you look at the first three verses of John chapter 1, in verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, um, one of the questions that has been asked you know, throughout history is, why is there something and not nothing? Um, or why am I something and not nothing? Why am I here? Why is anything here? And we've all heard stories um, like the one about Sir Isaac Newton, who had a friend who was an atheist, who came over and uh, Sir Isaac Newton showed him this model of the solar system. Very neat model, actually moved in such a way that it kind of imitated uh, the uh, movement of the planets in various ways. And the friend looked at it, thought that, wow, that's a great, great uh, model, and it was very impressed by it. And he said, who made this? And Sir Isaac Newton looked at him and said, uh, nobody, it just happened. And we've heard those kinds of stories over and over again, but the reality is whether anyone would uh, actually say outright, I, d- I just think everything just happened, many times we live that way. And what John is saying at the very uh, beginning of uh, his gospel is he's t- reminding us of what it says at the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here he starts, starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then he talks about creation. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So why is there something and not nothing? Because of the Word. The question is, who or what is the Word? Well, in that context, in that day and time, among unbelievers, the word was a philosophical uh, concept. It was the idea of the rational principle or the um, reason that stood behind everything that people could see. Philosophers throughout history have tried to figure out um, what's under the hood of the universe. You know, you see the you see the car. And you wonder what drives the car, what, what is under the hood. And so people have looked under the hood, so to speak, in various ways, trying to figure out what is the engine that drives the universe. And they came up with the idea that, well, it must be some sort of uh, rational principle or some sort of reason that they called logos, or as it's translated here, the word. And yet in the Old Testament, the word is used in terms of God saying, um, I will send my word to save you. 
or the word came to the prophets. And so the word in the Old Testament actually comes and acts and communicates to people. And that's why even in the book of um, Proverbs, it talks about the word as being the wisdom of God that was at the very beginning of creation. So in one sense, a word is kind of like um, a revelation of what's going on in your head, right? So when Dan gets up and he asks a question like, so what do you expect this new year? Uh, None of us will know until you open your mouth and tell us what you expect. It's your word that reveals you. It reveals your thoughts. It reveals your heart. It reveals what is true about you. And so the word is something that is a revelation. And we'll see more of that as we go through this chapter. But in this context, the very beginning, John is highlighting the fact that it's a revelation that is actually the reason behind everything that happens. Every single thing that happens has a reason. But that reason is not an impersonal idea or an impersonal force. That reason is a person. Behind everything is a reason. And that reason is a person called the Word, who we find out as you read on through John, is Jesus himself. Calvin puts it this way. He says, As to the evangelist calling the Son of God the speech, or the Word, The simple reason appears to me to be, first, because he is the eternal wisdom and will of God, and secondly, because he is the lively image of his purpose. Another way to say that would be his lively image of the reason behind everything, the purpose behind everything. That's why it says in um, Colossians chapter 1 of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So in Genesis chapter 1, I'm at Genesis, uh, excuse me, John chapter 1, when he says in verse 3, all things came into being through him. He's saying the same thing that Paul is saying when he says all things have been created through him. Then when he says, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, What's that all about? That's basically the same thing Paul is saying when he says all things have been created for him. They've been created by him and not apart from him, meaning not apart from his being at the very center of why that exists. It's not apart from Jesus. That nothing in this world, nothing in my life, nothing in your life exists apart from Jesus. It's through him and for him. Ultimately for him. He is the reason for it. And that's why when we talk about the reason for the season, you know, uh, what is the reason for the season when it comes to Christmas? Well, it's the same reason for the universe. John is saying the reason for Christmas is the reason for the universe. The universe exists for Jesus. And Christmas came about for Jesus' sake and for his purposes. And so it's one of those things that uh, just reminds us of the fact that there is a reason behind everything, 
that reason isn't just a objective kind of statement of reality. It's a person who shapes all reality and is the end of all reality. And that's not something to be afraid of. That's something to rejoice in. Just like we looked in Revelation chapter 4, and it worshiped God, or the, the various beings worshiped God, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And I mentioned the fact that there's no complaining in heaven, that the angels see what God is doing, and it evokes praise. God doesn't have to say, praise me. They just praise. They see from heaven's perspective what God is doing, and they can't help themselves but praise God. Right now, we wrestle with things. We wrestle with our own dissatisfaction with the way things are, and yet one day, we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to see things as they really are, and we won't have one complaint, not a single complaint, and we won't be able to help ourselves. We'll be worshiping God forever and ever when we see it from his perspective. So my point is, when the Bible says, and when John says, the reason behind everything is Jesus, that is something that we can praise God for. We don't have to be afraid of that. Um, you know, Scott joked about, you know, it's all about me. You know, sometimes we think, well, if it's not all about me, then maybe it's about somebody else, and that might be a bad thing. Well, the reality is, John says, it's not all about us. It's all about Jesus, but that's a good thing. That is truly a good thing, and he goes on to tell us in this gospel why it's a good thing. And so he goes on in the next verses, verses 4 through 18, to talk about the glory of the light. So he begins by talking about the word of God and that being the reason behind not only Christmas, but the universe. And then he goes on to talk about the glory of this word that became flesh. And the word becoming flesh uh, was a light to the world. In fact, uh, he talks in verse 4 about the fact that the life, speaking of Jesus who is the word, was the light of men. And most people think that the very first part, John is talking about the fact that Jesus was the light of the world before he came into the world. That if there was any truth that was understood by man, it was because of the light of Jesus, what is often called general revelation, that God... Uh, Jesus communicated light, communicated truth to the hearts of men uh, through conscience and through creation and through entering into history at various times. There was light that came. But then there was the very special revelation in Jesus taking on humanity and that that was ultimately the greatest light that has been shown uh, to us through the birth of Christ. The interesting thing about this is it says in verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. That probably means is a light to every man. Um, not enlightens every man in the sense that every man sees the truth and believes it because he goes on to say in verse 10, 
He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He was a light to every man and yet the world did not know him. They were blind to the light. Then it goes on to say, he came to his own, speaking of the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. So whatever light they saw didn't transform them, didn't cause them to embrace the light. And so we have Jesus, in a sense, being the general revelation to all creation, all people, and yet uh, through his incarnation, through Christmas, he shines the brightest light that could be shown. And yet we see the testimony of Scripture is that most people... uh, denied the light, uh, rejected the light. There's a story that I've told before about a, a desert nomad, remember? He wakes up in the middle of the night and he's hungry. And so he uh, lights a candle and he reaches over and he grabs some dates beside his bed and he bites into one of these dates and he sees a worm in it, throws it outside of his tent, grabs another date, bites into it, sees another worm, uh, throws it outside of his tent. And then he realizes, you know what? At this point, I'm gonna, not going to have anything to eat. So he blows out his candle and he eats all the dates. And the commentary on that story that someone has made is, many there are who prefer darkness and denial to the light of reality. That's what John is talking about here, is that the light has come into the world, but, as you'll say later on, they prefer darkness to light. Because the implications of the light... And what they had to do, or what that might mean, wasn't something that they wanted to embrace. And yet, graciously, by God, at work in our hearts, he causes us to do what we would not do naturally, which is receive the light. All of us are inclined to blow out the light and just live with the worms. And yet, it's God's grace that changes us so that we actually embrace the light. Um, this uh, passage, in verse 18, it says at the very end, um, no one has seen God at any time. And in different places in the Bible, it talks about that. It talks about God being uh, dwelling in, in a unapproachable light, and he's a God that uh, no man has seen or can see. And so it's interesting, in one sense you've got uh, stories in the Bible where it appears to say people see God. But what it really means is they see um, manifestations of God. The Bible says God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. And so we can't see him physically. So that's one thing that the Bible means when it says no one has seen God at any time because God the Father is a spirit and we can't see him physically. And yet, we want to know how are we going to see God then. And that's what this uh, passage is really talking about. Um, Many of you are familiar with The the Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and obviously um, there's a scene in The Hobbit where Bilbo is celebrating his 111th birthday, And he's talking to these other hobbits. And he says this. He says, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like. And I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Anybody know what he's talking about there? 
that is almost like saying God moves in a mysterious way. Uh, God uh, many times seems to be doing things and speaking to us in ways that we just can't wrap our minds around. Just like that statement by Bilbo, what in the world are you talking about? So what has God done? Well, in that same scene, Bilbo puts on the ring of power and disappears. What did Jesus do? And this is all by analogy and all analogies break down. But just by analogy, what did Jesus do? The Bible says, in a sense, Jesus took off the ring of power so that he could be visible. It says in Philippians 2 that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, that doesn't mean he stopped being God. He was fully God, is fully God, and fully man at the same time. And yet there's something in that phrase, he emptied himself. And that's what I mean by taking off the ring. In some sense, he laid aside his power, so to speak, at least in terms of uh, exercising it on earth in his human uh, role. He took the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. He became visible to us. He emptied himself and took on humanity that he might become visible. That was the humiliation uh, that is talked about. He was willing to humble himself that we might see God. Because we can't see him otherwise. He did for us what we needed him to do so that we could find out what God really looks like. Um, it also says in that verse, verse 18, that he has explained him, meaning he's explained the Father who is a spirit, who you, we cannot see. And that word explained means he's exegeted God. In the sense, he's, he's brought out what could not be seen otherwise. And the reality is that uh, Jesus did that in one sense in a way that a lot of people looked at and still didn't get it. Uh, which reminded me of, um, I've told you the story about the, sh- the tool shed that C.S. Lewis talks about. And I love the tool shed because I had the very, very same experience as a kid in my grandfather's tool shed. And where you could close the door and it would be pitch black except for just a crack above the door where the sun would shine in and you would see those rays of sunshine come in and you could see dust particles in that. So I know exactly what he was, uh, C.S. Lewis was talking about. And he says about that, you, you look at the beam and that's all you see is you see the beam and you see the dust particles, but everything else is pitch black. Unless you move around and the sunlight is hitting you right in the eye. And then you can see out of the shed and you can see the trees and the leaves and you can see the sun beyond that. I think that's a sense in which is a picture in a sense of what John is talking about here when he says Jesus showed up. He he. Uh, shined a light into the world that had not been uh, shined before. And yet people looked at it and they were still largely in the dark unless God moved them into a position where the light 
fell directly upon their eyes, the eyes of their heart. I think that's kind of like what uh, Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says in verse 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. C.S. Lewis could say, looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very, are very different experiences. So that people could see Jesus walk around. They could even see Jesus do miracles. And it was like looking at the beam, looking at the light. It's only as we look along the beam that we actually see that it traces all the way back to the glory of God. It's only at that point that that happens. And yet, John chapter 1 tells us nobody does that naturally. Nobody naturally positions themselves in a way that they can see that. It's only those who are born of God. God sovereignly, graciously positions us in a place where we see, as it says in verse 6, of the knowledge of God, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ when that light isn't simply manifested to the world externally and objectively, but it's manifested to us in our hearts. The light is shown into our hearts. And so what we see taking place is, um, as John Calvin said, the fixed principle that God, who was formerly invisible, has now made himself visible in Christ. And yet, we still need God to help us understand the objective revelation that we see in Jesus. But the question is, even if we recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh and he's come to reveal God, the question is, what kind of God is he? And if again, if you look at verse 14, you see that the kind of God that is revealed in Jesus is what we often sing about. It says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what is Christmas about? Christmas is about Jesus coming that we might see God. And Jesus came that we might see grace. If when we look at Jesus, we don't see grace, then we don't see God in Jesus. He came to show us grace. Um, Kind of going back to what I said before, a lot of people will ask the question, you know, the Bible says we can't see God, and yet in Jesus we supposedly do see God. How does that work? Well, it means that Seeing God the Father is not about a physical sight experience. It means that we see God revealed in Jesus and we only understand the unseen God through Jesus. That it's only as Jesus is our mediator that we can ever truly understand God and one day experience God and see him not physically, but see him truly. See his heart, see what he's truly like. Um, 
One of the questions that people often ask is when it says in verse 14 that um, we saw his glory, what does that mean? Some will say, well, maybe it means that they saw the glory of his miracles. We saw, they saw the glory of his greatness. They saw the glory of uh, how he was able to raise people from the dead and heal the blind and those kinds of things. And yet that's really, it doesn't appear to be what John is emphasizing. Certainly there was glory in that, but that's not really the greatest glory that is... Um, from John's perspective, the most important thing. Because from John's perspective, the glory is about grace. It's about grace. And so, can I raise someone from the dead without grace? Yes, I can. Can I open someone's eyes without grace? Yes, I can. The picture that we find in the book of John is in John 13, Jesus washing people's feet. And whose feet are those he's washing? He's washing the feet of 12 disciples. Uh, Ten of them are going to run off and leave him when he's arrested. Uh, One of them is going to deny him three times. And the other one is going to betray him. He's washing the feet of sinners. He's washing the feet of those who don't deserve their feet to be washed. The glory that John is talking about when he says, we saw his glory. Yes, the miracles were great, but that really isn't what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing grace. And he's also emphasizing joy because in chapter 2, what does he do at the very beginning of chapter 2? Jesus goes to a wedding and they run out of wine. And he turns water into wine. And a lot of people look at that and say, that seems like a kind of frivolous thing to do, you know, compared to opening someone's eyes who's been blind or raising some from the, someone from the dead. What's the big deal about providing refreshments at a wedding? Well, John could say in verse 11 of chapter 2, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Manifested his glory. You could say, well, that was just his power, his power to turn water into wine. I don't think that's really what it's about. Wine in the Bible is oftentimes, oftentimes associated with joy and celebration. So why did Jesus do that? Did he do it just to show that he could? But just to say I'm powerful? No, he 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 gave wine, indeed the best wine that could be given to people who number 1 did not deserve it and number 2 needed to really see what God is like. God is like someone who desires to bring joy to people who don't deserve it. Some people have highlighted the fact that the word grace actually goes back uh, uh, in its root form to the idea of bringing joy. Grace means to bring joy. And so I believe this first miracle of Jesus and John's comment on it about manifesting his glory is meant to say 
that it's all about joy. But it's about joy being given to people who don't deserve it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But it's to people who don't deserve that joy. That's why it's grace. That's why it is the glory of grace. Um, many people will uh, connect uh, the phrase full of grace and truth back to Exodus 34 when God, um, actually Exodus 33 where God says that he will reveal his glory and he says, I will make my, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And then in chapter 34, uh, God proclaims his name and says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So that when God says, I want you to know my glory, I want you to see me as I am, he emphasizes abounding in loving kindness and truth. And many people would say that's the same thing as being full of grace and truth. Grace is God's love to those who don't deserve it. And love is pursuing the joy of people. That's what love is. It's pursuing God's, excuse me, people's good, which means pursuing their joy. And grace is doing it for those who don't deserve it. And so, as Matthew Henry said, um, Jesus came and dwelt among us, worms of the earth, uh, who had, uh, whom God had no need of. Uh, he got nothing from us. We are corrupt and depraved. We've revolted from God. But he came and dwelt among a rebellious people, indeed, among a generation of vipers which is actually part of the reading that Jim and Karen did earlier. He says, you got to really understand how John could say that Jesus was full of grace. It's only as you see the world as full of vipers, as full of snakes, as full of scorpions ready to strike back at God and accuse him of being the reason why everything's so bad. It's only when we see things in that perspective that we realize just how full of grace God is and just how full of grace God in Jesus truly was. The last point is, and it fittingly brings us to the glory of the Lamb. We didn't actually read this part, and for time's sake, I'm not going to read the rest of John chapter 1. But what we find is, in verses 19 and following, um, John uh, highlights his testimony to the light. He said earlier in John chapter 1 that John was not the light, but he came to give testimony to the light. And now he defines the light as the Lamb of God. If you look in verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world of the world. Newborns are like Christmas presents. We celebrate uh, the birth of little Jasper this weekend, and you think about uh, little Jasper, and you wonder, what will his life be like? What will his talents be? What will his gifts be? Uh, What will God do in and through him? You just wonder what the gifts will be in that gift. And the reality is that's true of every child born into the world, and it's especially true of the birth of Jesus. You wonder, okay, as Mary and Joseph looked at baby Jesus, did they wonder 
what would come from this life, what was going to happen. And what we see in John chapter 1, in these verses here, when it begins to talk about the ministry of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we see the gift within the gift. Indeed, we see the ultimate end of the gift of Jesus at Christmas time. Last week, we talked about the, the dark backdrop of the origin of Christmas, the Humpty Dumpty that fell off the wall, the Humpty Dumpty that had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but the king's son could, and that's why Jesus came, is to do just that. Well, let me wrap this up by just highlighting the fact that when we think about Jesus being the Lamb of God, there are all kinds of images that ought to come to mind. One is uh, we could go to Genesis 22 and look at the story where God told uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac was probably in his late teens, early 20s at that time. And they're going to this mountain that God told them to go go to. And uh, Isaac looks and says, you know, I see the, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Or if we went to Exodus chapter 12, uh, Moses tells the people on God's command that they are to slay the Passover lamb so that when the death angel comes over their homes, he will see the blood of the slain Passover lamb and they will be passed over. They will not experience the wrath of God. Or we can go back to Isaiah 53 where it talks about this servant of the Lord who is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he's led like a lamb to the slaughter that he might see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Satisfied with what? Satisfied with the salvation of the world. We talked about that before. The question is, what does that mean, the salvation of the world? Um, There are those who believe that uh, somehow there's only going to be a few people saved in the end. That hell is going to be bigger than heaven in terms of people. That's not true. I don't believe it's true. I don't think scripture bears that out. The Bible tells us that um, the greatest purchase of Christmas was uh, the purchase of the world. Not in the sense that it took place at the birth of Jesus, but in the sense that it was the end for which Jesus was born. In Matthew 1, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Revelation 5, it says about the lamb, You were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Um, In Genesis 17, to Abraham, it was said, You will be a father of a multitude of nations. Proverbs 14 says, In a multitude of people is a king's glory. In a multitude of people. And in uh, Revelation 7 it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. There are those who've said that when Jesus came, he intended to save nothing less than the world. Now, someone else has said there are two errors. One is the error that everyone will be saved. Bible makes it clear that everyone will not be saved. But the other error is that only a few people 
will be saved. Spurgeon uh, put it like this. He says, I do abhor from my heart that continual whining of some men about their own little church as the remnant, the few that are to be saved. They're always dwelling upon straight gates and narrow ways and upon what they conceive to be a truth that but few shall enter heaven. I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell because Christ in everything is to have the preeminence. And I cannot conceive how he could have the preeminence if there are to be more in the dominions of Satan than in paradise. Moreover, it is said there is to be a multitude that no man can number in heaven. I have never read that there is to be a multitude that no man can number in hell. So when it says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it doesn't mean that every person will be saved, but it does mean he will see the travail of his soul and he'll be satisfied. He'll be a king that has a multitude in which he can glory in and who will glory in their king. And so when we think about the glory of Christmas, it is the glory of the fact that God has chosen truly to save the world and he will do it. And all that the Bible talks about and what the Bible means when he talks about saving the world. Encouragement as we close is to just ask ourselves, have we seen and beheld the Lamb of God? Uh, Spurgeon, again, was one time uh, doing a, uh, a sound check at the Crystal Palace, and he quoted from John chapter 1 and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And a workman there heard that, was convicted of his sin, went home, and ultimately was saved. And the encouraging thing is that the Lamb of God was given that we might be saved. And Matthew Henry could say, if it's the Lamb's intent to save the world, then why not me? Why not me? We should see Jesus as an able and willing Savior for us personally and embrace him as that and truly celebrate Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that you've given us a lamb who was slain to save the world. Help us to not be those who reject him, but help us to be those who receive him. And help us to be those who bring people to him as the true light and the true lamb and the true reason for all that there is. Please prepare us for the Lord's Supper. Please prepare us to honor you as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.